Happened to Me, a rare disease and medical challenges podcast. The mission of our podcast is to support you, our listeners, and to create community as you confront the toughest challenges in life. All of us will experience health hardships. The real question is, how do we adapt? That's the focus of It Happened to Me. We help you overcome limitations and live a full and satisfying life. Drawing on their own health challenges, hosts Kathy Gillenhorn and Beth Glassman interview guests who share stories and research to help you succeed in the face of difficult health obstacles. It happened to me. I'm not alone. And neither are you. Welcome, Dr. Judith Goldstein. Dr. Goldstein is Associate Professor of Ophthalmology and the Chief of Low Vision and Rehabilitation Services at Wilmer Johns Hopkins. I want to disclose that Kathy and I are patients of Dr. Goldstein and huge fans. And today we're going to discuss low vision. Low vision means an individual has sight loss that cannot be corrected by glasses or by surgery. It is a permanent sight loss, and the role of the low vision specialist is to maximize the remaining sight and to teach skills so that patients can adapt to the sight loss. So let's start with the basics, Dr. Goldstein. What is low vision? So thank you, Kathy, and thank you, Beth. It's great to join you. Um, so low vision is really a descriptive term, and I think it's unfortunately sounds like a very scary term to most of the people who get referred to our service. Um, and the answer to what is low vision might depend on who you ask. You know, essentially, essentially, when we think about people having low vision, we're talking about this group of people that you mentioned that can't be fixed with medicine or laser or surgery. But like many of our senses, we don't think about them until they're really affected. And you know, a great example of this is the loss that many people experienced from COVID when people lost their sense of taste or smell. You know, for some, it wasn't a big deal. And for others, it was really quite traumatic. And so for those lucky enough to recover those senses, they once again began to enjoy their taste and smell. But in the case of low vision, we don't expect recovery and the loss is often partial. So there's often a common expectation that, well, if I have partial loss of vision, I might be able to recover that partial loss. But when people have low vision, they have different elements of their vision that may be affected. And so it can manifest itself in a lot of different ways. And for some, it's your central vision clarity. For some, it's your side vision clarity or your peripheral vision. But for those of us who practice rehabilitation, we really think about low vision and how vision loss affects everyday function. So what are the causes of low vision? So the conditions that cause it are many, and um, they're often categorized into eye conditions and brain conditions. Hmm. So when they're talking about the eye, we think about things like corneal or retinal or glaucoma degenerations, um, sometimes inherited eye diseases like ocular albinism. And then of course, we see a lot of uh, neurologic disease that can cause vision loss. So that might be things like tumor, or stroke, vascular events, um, and degenerative uh, neurologic disease. But for most people who might be listening, the most common causes are really macular degeneration, glaucoma, and diabetic retinopathy. Gotcha. So 
Um, would you say the elderly at more are more at risk for low vision or what groups of people seem to be most at risk? Yeah, so older adults are generally more at risk because most eye disease is age-related that can't be cured. So you have more people who are getting older who are losing vision. So they tend to be more at risk. Um, so those are the individuals who we often hear about things like this macular degeneration or glaucoma. Those are great examples. But I think what's important to consider when we're talking about elderly being at risk is the context of that. Well, why is that important? I, th I think it's important because low vision is a behavioral intervention. So we're always trying to modify people's spectacles or the way that they do activities. And when we're older, um, it tends to be harder to adapt. So hmm. for those of us who have had perfect vision all of our lives, when we lose vision, that's a very difficult challenge. And also I think the other important thing to think about with older adults is that they have other health issues that are going on. So they have, may have physical decline, they may have cognitive decline or emotional decline. So it, is it yes to your statement, it's true, older adults are more likely to be affected, but from a rehab perspective, there are many things that we're concerned about when we think about older adults and the process of rehabilitation. Well, do you also then work with children? Because the reason I'm with you is I have a very rare genetic optic um, neuropathy. And I'm lucky, my variant is a mild adult presentation, but the more severe form is childhood onset. And I'm wondering, do you work with all the children that have been affected by this? So the answer to that is yes. And it was interesting. I was just thinking about you because um, I had a young lady last week with Wilhelm Really? So, yeah. Oh. So, right. And um, so, yes, we work with all ages because um, there are many conditions that are congenital or strongly inherited, and they may reveal themselves during early developmental years. So maybe when people are very young or when they're working age adults. So conditions that people might be familiar with are things like Stargardt's maculopathy or, like I mentioned, ocular albinism. But we also see many children with glaucoma and neurodegenerative disease, and those things also exist um, in older adults. But the key is that with younger adults, they tend to be more adaptive, right? Think about right. somebody who you might teach a language to, right? They're much more apt to pick up on a language when they're younger. So the adaptation and the rehabilitation process tends to be much um, easier and uh, more fluid in younger adults or younger people. Makes sense, right? So what is the progression of sight loss? Can it occur at stages over time? Yes, yeah, so some conditions are quite stable um, and don't really change over time, like things like ocular albinism. And then there are conditions that really do degenerate over time. But oftentimes I think what people hear from their doctor when they go in is, well, everything looks stable. Your numbers are all the same. You're great, you're stable. Mm -hmm. But what I'll often say to people, because they come in to see me and they say, you know, I think I'm a little bit worse than I was last time. And sure enough, their numbers are all the same. But I think what happens is we experience age-related changes sometimes on top of stable vision or stable findings. Hmm. So um, there are conditions that absolutely progress and degenerate, but then there are these conditions that are supposedly, I'll say, stable, but people think that they are getting worse all the time. Hmm. And how is low vision diagnosed? So that's a tricky one. Um, it really depends on your perspective, right? So there are some formal definitions in place 
like the World Health Organization or the American Academy of Optometry or Ophthalmology have really specific criteria that they outline um, as it relates to things like visual acuity or visual field. You know, but, but low vision is really a functional diagnosis. You know, when you can't be corrected with glasses or contact lenses and the vision still isn't satisfactory to meet your demands, then it's low vision. So a good example might be, you know, people who work on a computer all day or have difficulty sustaining that, or people report driving at night is a problem or telling the doneness of food or recognizing faces when they come in the room. These are common things that people will say, but the diagnosis really has to stem from a conversation and the conversation with one's doctor and an in-depth discussion of their functional concerns. So a great example is that, you know, we have patients who have stroke. Um, they lose half their vision to something called a hemianopia, but they still have 20-20 acuity. So, yeah. you know, it's very tricky because it really is this functional diagnosis. And if the time doesn't permit to have that conversation with your doctor about how you're living your life or how your vision is affecting your everyday, it oftentimes will go undiagnosed or underdiagnosed. Can your eye doctor, your regular eye doctor, diagnose low vision? Oh, for sure. Your regular eye doctor can diagnose low vision by having those conversations with you, right? They can ask you, how are you doing? How are you functioning? How are you reading? How's your driving? All of those types of things. So it absolutely can be diagnosed by any eye doctor. Um, the real question is whether or not, I think sometimes whether people are not can treat eye doctor, you know, whether they could actually treat low vision. So hmm. the big question is then, when do you seek out a low vision specialist? At what point? Right. So, you know, I, I think that you end up seeking out this low vision specialist when you figure out that you yourself are just not satisfied with your everyday functional demands and how you meet them. So you might end up talking to your eye physician and explaining that to them. And then you would seek out a specialist who does this all the time. I think one of the challenges is that many um, eye doctors are very busy in today's healthcare environment. Um, and they're focused on the anatomical effects of vision loss, right? Is yeah. your retina stable? Is your pressure stable, right? How does your cornea look? What's the thickness like? So they're looking really, really importantly at the anatomy and that's where they're spending their time. And so it doesn't leave a lot of time to examine those functional effects. So they can diagnose it, but then it's incumbent upon the patient to ask them, hey, can you please send me to the right doctor? Okay, so the question is, if you feel that you are losing sight and you need help and you don't get an answer from your eye doctor that you find is satisfactory, how do you find a low vision specialist? How do we come to you, Dr. Goldstein? How would people find their way to you or to other low vision specialists around the country? So there's, there's a couple of ways, right? The, the, the first and probably the best way is to ask your eye doctor, your neurologist, your primary care physician, or people, other people you know who have experience with vision loss and have sought care with specialists. Um, sometimes, you know, the doctors that you may ask may say, well, you don't really need that. Well, mm -hmm. I, I would often say that that's really not the role of a doctor to always say what people need when it comes to function right? Only we know about our own function. Nobody is with us 24-7 every day and sort of experiences that. So asking people you know or doctors, so these recommendations are always helpful. Um, the other option always is to go on the internet and search that out. But I think what's important to understand is that like 
any doctor, there's a quality to the doctor, there's a skill. So, you know, one of the things that's very common in our field is the provision of assistive equipment. And so that is one thing we use quite a bit to enhance vision and sometimes to enhance function. But I think that it's important for people when they're seeking out a specialist to make sure that the person is considering um, the entire treatment plan and not just devices. It's other things to might be aware of is that uh, many low vision specialists are optometrists. However, sometimes there are ophthalmologists who do this work, but it's really a multidisciplinary mm -hmm. team with occupational therapists, rehab therapists, sometimes orientation and mobility specialists, teachers for the visually impaired for children in school. So like anything, I think always the best approach is to ask people you know, um, but then do your homework, do some research and figure out you know, who's gonna be a good match for me. And if you seek care and it's not a great fit, find another doctor. Hmm. And do you need a referral to see a low vision specialist? So you do not. The services are actually covered by Medicare and private insurers. So it's okay. the same as seeing any other eye doctor that you would just make an appointment with, right? Mm -hmm. But we're a rehab team. And so sometimes we work with occupational and rehab therapists and we may have to refer them to those people. But I think it might be helpful for your listeners to understand that there's two kinds of referrals when you speak to this. One is hey, I'd like you to go see this doctor. We think about that as a referral, somebody referring you to somebody else. Another type of referral is an insurance referral, that you're part of some sort of managed care plan where you are required to seek out a, a sign-off by your doctor. So when I'm talking, yeah, to go, exactly. So when I'm talking about referral, I'm talking about you can call up and make an appointment with any low vision specialist, but you're always subject to your healthcare plan's requirements. So in terms of expectations, what happens at a low vision appointment? Right. So similar to other medical subspecialties, um, there's an evaluation and a treatment component. So we evaluate and then we put things in place that we think might uh, help someone. So the evaluation starts with an extensive patient history. Because treatment is individualized to the person, um, both the doctors and the rehab therapists have to understand, you know, what are the goals of the patient? It's really common for patients to come in and say, I just can't see. I just want to see better. And then we have to sort of explain to the patient, you know, we understand that. But what rehabilitation is all about is actually finding out what are the things that you have difficulty doing and let's tackle them one by one, because we're really oftentimes not making the person better, we're making the things that they're doing easier to perform. So the goals may be things like an ability, you know, I wanna be able to see to read better or drive or walk more safely. So knowledge about that person's interests or lifestyle, you know, are they a student, are they a parent, do they have children that they have to care for? What's the status of their physical, emotional and cognitive health? All of these things are key. So that first part of that visit at that appointment is about 20 minutes talking to your doctor and basically understanding that person's entire health status. And so after we do the history. The patient you were referring to is so very important and really expect to do extensive um, explaining of who you are, what you're doing, how you're doing it, and your history. 
Completely. So we were just talking about that young lady that I saw with Wolfram syndrome, right? It was really important to know how is she doing socially in school? How is she accommodating? Is she advocating for herself when she's struggling, right? You know, I'm not often asking, you know, a 90 year old patient, are they advocating for themselves? I mean, I might if there was something relevant, but the issues are different for each person. So after we do the history, which just takes probably about 20 minutes or so, then we do the evaluation piece. And there we are doing the things that some people are pretty familiar with, like measuring visual acuity, how big or how small a letter you can see, somebody's side vision. How much side vision do you have? And do you have missing pieces within your central vision? And then lastly, for the testing standpoint, we're doing measuring contrast sensitivity, which may not be familiar to a lot of people, but that's seeing sort of white things on a white background or black things on a black background. And that oftentimes is when people will come in to see us and they'll say, you know, I can't recognize people's faces, but my acuity, my resolution on the eye chart is pretty good. Well, if you think about eye charts, right, we're reading black letters on a white background, you know, 100% contrast, but the world is not that way. So we test the patient, we evaluate them for spectacle correction, and then we apply treatments, right? We do different interventions, and they may fall into about three different categories. We might try to enhance vision. We might try to substitute. So if reading is difficult, maybe we're doing things auditorily. And we spend a lot of time in education and counseling because I think a lot of people are very scared. Yeah. And I think they're worried about what the future holds. And so a lot of it is understanding that they're not alone, that they get a good handle on where are their challenges and how do we meet those challenges. And so that first visit, um, you know, you ask what happens at this appointment. It's an hour face to face with the doctor, just that very first part, just trying well, to an appointment your first visit or is it long should you expect an hour appointment on your first visit or is it longer mm. so it depends on what it is that we're doing so it's usually about an hour with the doctor but if there's special testing or if you're going to see a therapist on the same day it could be upwards of three hours you know face to face with our team so it's a long first visit but at least it's not long while you're sitting in the waiting room, right? At least, at least you're working with your team to try to find solutions. So. And it's an effective first visit. Very yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. And does the low vision appointment substitute for your annual eye exam, or is that do you need a still need your annual eye person, or do you really transfer to the low vision center and you? Right. So we always encourage people to stick with their, we'll call them their ocular disease doctor, right? Because all of our patients generally have some sort of problem, right? So you need constant monitoring medically of your situation or regular monitoring of your medical situation. So I always emphasize to people, you know, we're here to help you with your function. And that's what our time is going to be spent when we're together. But you need to continually follow up with your medical eye doctor so they can look for changes in the ocular health that might or might not benefit from treatment. Okay, but does your eye exam annually substitute for the, or replace your annual eye exam with the, uh, you know, at your optometrist or something like that? Right, so it can do that. It can be a substitute in those cases. Um, 
because we're doing all of those same metrics, all of those same measures. So we can fulfill that part of it, but what we're often not doing is the medical part. So a lot depends on that person who's doing that annual eye exam. Is that the only eye doctor that person has, or is there an ocular disease specialist, right? Okay. So it just depends. You know, we have some patients who have five or six eye doctors, and I have some patients who say, Dr. Goldstein, I'm only going to come to you and I would appreciate if you would look in the back of my eyes and dilate because my other doctors tell me that there's no treatment for my condition. So, you know, we will substitute in certain cases, but when there's active disease, we make sure that they're connected with their other disease specialists. Wow. Now, how often should you plan on seeing the low vision specialists a year? Say um, I go to my um, ocular disease specialist twice a year. How often do I come to you in addition? Right. So, you know, it really depends on your needs and the treatment because it's so individualized. So for many of my patients with what I'll call relatively stable function, I might see them annually right? But for patients who are new or who are showing changes in their vision or have new demands, um, let's say somebody's starting a new job, right? Mm -hmm. So they may need a lot of accommodations. They may need new technology. They may need support to work with their employer to make sure that they don't have to leave work too late and drive home in the dark. So these times when there are changes in people's, we'll say health state or, or functional state or um, life state, like working at a new job, those patients we may see more often. When they're in rehabilitation with the therapist, they may come as frequently, let's say, as once or twice a week if they've had a recent stroke because the event is so acute and there's a lot of work to be done. So it varies by person. And I think that, you know, one of the key things about vision rehabilitation is it's incredibly individualized. You know, we talk about this is the this is the true definition of boutique medicine, right? It's patient sensitive. That's the, you do amazing work. I can say firsthand, but <laughs> all of this. It's so, really Doctor Doctor Goldstein, can I ask you? You mentioned about sight loss and trauma. So, if a person comes to see you and they're they know they're suffering with sight loss, and that's why they're there it's really a trauma in their life. How do you help support them at this very difficult time? So I think that's really super important point that you raised. You know, I, I explained to a lot of patients, especially when there's acute changes in vision, that it really is traumatic. It really is like a loss, right? Some people actually yes. refer to a loss in vision as like having a death in the family, right? This is something yeah. we've had for our whole life. And, you know, we have to be genuine and serious about the impact on people. We can't just say, well, I'm sorry, you've had vision loss, come back in six months, right? This is not the way to, to treat that. So, no. you know, I think that, you know, when I have patients who are having difficulty adjusting to changes in light in, in their vision, you know, I often will remind them or show them that there's many solutions available to people with any levels of vision loss. So these solutions can be simple, they can be complex. But I think the first important point for people to understand is that the work that we do um, does not involve restoration, right? We're not talking about recovery. Right. So the first step is really acceptance. It's like any problem, mm -hmm. right? We have to accept where we are to move forward. 
So finding an expert who understands how best to address those problems is another great first step, regardless of the level of vision loss. Because being informed is really powerful, right? We can learn to adapt. We can do things differently as long as we're told, as long as we're shown, as long as we're explained. And sometimes I have patients who come in who aren't ready, right? They're not ready to walk down the rehab path. And um, I tell them that. I said, look, you're not ready for me or you're not ready for the treatments that we have to offer, but this is what they are. And when you're ready, we're here. So I think sometimes it's all about planting seeds. And when people are ready to you know, grow those flowers in themselves or whatever it is, I think that they will do it. But some people, you know, unfortunately never adapt, right? But you know, I think the most important thing to understand is that you're not alone, that there are ways to work through this, but acceptance is key to move forward. Do you ever recommend a social worker? Sure. Yeah. So social workers, psychologists, psychiatrists, all of that. But I think that when we look at issues in our work and our work in um, research in depression and vision loss, where we've looked at the prevalence of depression and anxiety in people who experience vision loss, we, they sort of fall into sort of three categories. Um, the first category are people who may have chemical depression, who have been depressed or anxious before the vision loss, right? And those people are oftentimes under treatment. The second is probably the most common, which are older adults who have acquired vision impairment, who are really frustrated. They're really frustrated because everything takes longer to do. They'll tell you that they have good days and bad days with their vision or their emotional health. But they don't, they'll tell you that, yeah, I'm depressed, but I also feel like I'm kind of well-adjusted. Like it just depends. And really my problem is more about frustration. If I can figure out a way to make things a little bit more efficient in my daily activities, mm -hmm. I think I would feel better. And then there's sort mm -hmm. of this third group of patients who are either have anxiety or depression or other emotional health concerns that it's more than just frustration. It's real true impact on their every day, every minute of their function. And I think for those individuals, um, seeking out uh, psychological, psychiatric, social work care is incredibly valuable. Um, but I also think finding the right match. And I mentioned earlier, a lot of times I'll recommend grief counselors to my patients mm. wow. because they understand what it's like to lose something that's important to you, right? So it's yes. tough to go for therapy, but I think when you find the right person, I think coupled with vision rehabilitation, it's a great match. So you mentioned that the treatment plan is really very individualized. So when a patient comes in, each patient has their own treatment plan. Is that how you provide care? Yes, right? So that first 20 minutes where we're really doing that history and we're developing an assessment and a rehabilitation plan, that rehab plan is unique to that patient. So where you may have, um, glaucoma and take a series of eye drops, right? There's you know, just so many glaucoma drops on the market and you may try some to lower the pressure and find that best cocktail for that patient, so to speak. In rehabilitation, we're finding that treatment plan, we're finding that best cocktail, but that cocktail isn't about fixing that person. It's about finding solutions that that person is not, that are not only efficacious, which means that those solutions work, but they're effective, that they work for that person, right? Because some people are willing to make modifications in a certain way, 
And other people will say, well, Dr. Goldstein, if I have to use that tool or that device to help me read, then that's not going to be good for me. So that's where that real individualization takes place, that we have to explore the solutions and then we have to explore whether it fits somebody's lifestyle. Hmm. So Dr. Goldstein, why is it that we don't know about low vision and rehabilitation services? Why is this a hidden gem? Right. So I think that part of the reason is that there are very, very few low vision specialists um, in the country. Um, the nature of this profession is that there's an extensive face-to-face -face time with patients. So we may only see anywhere between eight and 12 patients in a given day. So uh -huh. there are not a lot of people who go into this field because of the intensity of the patient interaction. You have to be um, incredibly patient and it's not incredibly profitable. And so in the day of high school debt and loans and people trying to manage their careers, it's not a very popular field. So mm -hmm. I think the first reason is that you don't have a lot of people doing it. I think the second reason you don't hear about it or know about it is that the people who would be most apt to refer to the um, low vision specialist are often surgical specialties. Mm -hmm. And so surgeons by their very nature um, are fixing the person and they're very focused on the anatomy. And so they may not be thinking as much about the function. And so they may forget to tell the patient, hey, you know, there's another path forward here. And, you know, I'm going to continue to monitor your glaucoma, but I also want you to go see this doctor to help you with your function. And because eye physicians particularly are incredibly busy, I think that oftentimes it goes overlooked. And people this forget. Is why this, is, this podcast is so important that we can get to uh, potential patients directly so that they can get themselves to you or to other low vision specialists to help themselves. Because what you're saying is they can't necessarily rely on their eye doctors to refer them because they won't see the problem. They won't think to refer them, not out of malice, just that they're busy. I think that's right. I think that yeah. oftentimes I'll ask patients, how did you get to me? And they said, oh, I asked Dr. So-and-so if anything more could help me. And they said, oh, sure, I want you to go see Dr. Goldstein. So it was just a simple thing. And as soon as yeah. the patient asked, they, the physician you know, really responds. But so oftentimes patients, sorry. About that patients, potential patients should be thinking about putting in their toolbox to ask their doctors if they're having vision problems. Something as simple as that can really make a difference in the quality of their life. You're absolutely right, Kathy. Um, I do think that patients should be coming into their appointments with their eye doctors, their eye physicians, with their list of questions. And it allows the physician to know exactly what needs to be addressed at that visit um, and to leave time to address these concerns. So Dr. Goldstein, is there new research going on in low vision? Yes. So there's quite a bit of research going on um, and it sort of stems in different areas um, one of the things that we're working right now on is stroke-related vision problems and scotoma management. So if you can imagine, um, sometimes people have missing pieces in their vision. Sometimes we refer to this as sort of Swiss cheese. And that often happens when there's central vision involvement from maybe advanced glaucoma or macular degeneration. And then there's also stroke-related eye disease where maybe half of the visual field is missing. 
And so what we're currently doing is we're examining scan paths. Um, how do people tackle a passage of text? How do people tackle walking into a room and looking at people's faces? Because one of the things that we know is that a lot of our patients have difficulties in the area that I just mentioned. Maybe they read slowly. And the question is, what's happening to their eye movements as they're reading? So if we can figure out what their scan paths look like, maybe we can train them to use their vision differently. So um, we're using head-mounted technology to examine some of this. Um, and so we're currently um, recruiting patients for uh, two studies here at Hopkins. And then some of the other work that we're really interested gets back to what you and Kathy were talking about, which is the delivery model, right? How do we make sure that every patient who comes into their doctor is connected to care when there's a problem? And so we've been working on something called clinical decision support models, which is basically models in the healthcare system where when the physician is seeing the patient, a pop-up comes up in the electronic record that reminds the physician, this patient mm -hmm. has loss of vision. This patient yes. has this measure. Do you think they would benefit from a low vision evaluation? So exactly what Kathy was mentioning previously. That's huh. exactly right. So those oh, are some of the great? areas. So Dr. Goldstein, is there a point in time where you will say to a patient, I don't think it's safe for you to drive or it's not safe for you to get on a treadmill where there are certain activities due to vision loss that would not be in their best interest. Yeah, so un unfortunately, those conversations are fairly regular um, are they? You know, uh -huh. in the work that we do. Um, so I think you know, what I try to do is I try to slowly transition my patients. Um, you know, as I mentioned, you know, we're always talking about behavior modifications throughout the course of the condition and in the lives of our patients. So when it comes to driving, which is a major public safety issue, you know, yeah. I have to consider not only the patient, but other people on the road. So I talk to patients first about, you know, what kind of modifications are you doing? And what are their existing skill sets that allow them to compensate? Well, you know, I've had lots of patients who come in who tell me they were professional drivers, right? They were truck mm. drivers. They were mm. professional drivers for, you know, auto companies. So, you know, right then and there, I sort of know that they're probably highly skilled, right? Or I have patients who come in and say, well, I was always a terrible driver, right? So <laughs> maybe they're not compensating quite so well. So it's, it's important to understand that it's not just with, particularly with driving and even being on a treadmill. We're not just talking about vision. We're talking about the whole person. So in these cases, what I'll typically do is I'll start with small changes. I'll say, look, you know, you can't drive at night anymore. Maybe you can drive during the daytime, but I can only... I'd only like you to go to these few places. So again, it's about planting that seed. And this gives the patient time to plan, to test alternative transportation options and approaches so that they can cognitively and emotionally adapt. But you know, when the function and the vision are at a level that the patient should not be driving, you know, I'm upfront, I'm transparent. And you know, I clearly state that it is time to retire from driving. Right? It is really important to be clear with people when there is a risk. You know, dancing around these issues is not wise. Um, we know from uh, prior work that there are much higher risks in younger males who are visually impaired that are at higher risk of motor vehicle collisions. So again, mm -hmm. it's really about being clear. I think that 
um, you know, I advise them of these risks to themselves and to others. Um, and although they may not stop that day, I think oftentimes they'll come back to me and they'll always be very excited to share with me, oh, Dr. Goldstein, guess what? You'll be so happy I stopped driving, right? <laughs> so there's somebody who's sort of telling them, hey, this isn't a good idea. And sometimes it's really about just giving people permission to stop. On occasion, I've had patients who come in and said, oh, thank you so much for telling me that I shouldn't be driving. I thought I shouldn't be, but I didn't know. So all of these things that you're talking about, Beth, about, you know, when is it time to stop this or when is it time to stop that? You know, it comes back to the goal. The goal is not driving. The goal is transportation. How do I get mm -hmm. from here to there? And although we may be used to driving, we're fortunately in an age where transportation options are better in most communities that are not rural, but most communities with Uber and Lyft and GoGo Grandparent and all of these new approaches. So, you know, we try to plant these seeds so that we can tell people, hey, you know, there are other options. And, you know, to your point about things like the treadmill, you know, are they using that safety key on the treadmill, right? Or, you know what, we shouldn't do that anymore either. And let's look at other ways. So the goal is exercise. And how can we safely exercise, not go back on the treadmill? Well, that's certainly a very positive way of looking at it instead of being punitive. I think that makes the message a lot easier to tolerate. I think that's beautiful. And so what modifications, strategies, um, adaptations can you help low vision patients? It, can you help and teach them so that they can appreciate and enjoy daily life activities like cooking, like uh, dressing, like reading, what can you teach them? How can you help them? So it falls into these categories of treatment, right? So the first part is always enhancement. Is there anything that we can do that make that vision better? And sometimes um, it's not just about, let's call it the acuity or the resolution. Sometimes it's just about enhancement with the right kind of lens. So I'm going to give you an example of enhancement. You know, if someone's on a computer all day, you know, it begs the question, should they be in a multifocal, a progressive, a bifocal, a single vision only lens so that they can see the computer all through one lens? So when we talk about enhancement, we're typically talking about the right kind of spectacle correction. And in our case, we oftentimes will use magnification in many cases. So getting them the right type of tool to be able to read their mail or read their books. And the tools are different depending on what the goal is. So again, being in an age of technology, you know, we're oftentimes using off the shelf technology. So we're modifying people's phones, we're modifying people's tablets, we're modifying people's computers, right? So right. that first part is all about visual enhancement. The second part is about substitution, right? Again, using other strategies. So if I can't see my computer screen, I'm gonna teach somebody about how to make that computer talk to them, right? How do I highlight some text and have it read back to me? Um, so these are skills that have to be taught. And again, when we were talking earlier about older adults, sometimes our memory isn't quite so good. Right. So it requires reinforcement over and over. So teach it's, it's one thing to teach it, and then sometimes it's necessary to reinforce it. Right. And sometimes these skills that we teach people, um, and Beth and I joke about this a lot, actually, is you know the simple stuff, the things we don't think about, like 
you know, stop trying to put that toothpaste on that toothbrush, right? Just squirt the toothpaste in the mouth and put your toothbrush in right after, <laughs> and that's it. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's oftentimes the simple things, and most of my patients will be like, you know, that's not rocket science. I didn't think about it, but I'm really glad you mentioned it because I wouldn't have thought about it. So it's really right. about tackling these problems. And if you think about people's goals, I want to have a dinner party. That dinner party really breaks down into many, many, many things. I got to go shopping and I got to chop the food and I have to set the table and I have to serve people. Well, maybe if you had the food delivered, maybe if you bought the pre-chopped vegetables, right? Maybe if you used a timer because you couldn't tell the doneness of food. So you do all these little tiny things, which take longer for sure. But if you break these activities down, you really can cap, you can really tackle it one at a time and teach people the right kind of approaches. So another, you know, quick thing for people is always when they're working in the kitchen to make sure they have the right kind of lighting. So just modifying and teaching people the right kind of lighting. Sometimes bright lights work great and sometimes they're blinding. So, you know, people say, yeah, that doesn't make sense, but you're right. So there's lots of things that can be taught, but it has to be very individualized and the person has to, of course, want to learn, right? Absolutely. Boy, this is a lot to think about. But, you know, when you made me chuckle a few minutes ago, it made me think that maybe keeping your sense of humor is one of the greatest things you can keep in your toolbox when you confront any medical challenge. Because at a certain point, it's it's the cards you're dealt and you're going to have to deal with it and move on. And I love that you made me laugh and think that way. I just, uh, thank you. And is there yeah. any last advice you'd like to give our listeners and uh, just to uh, close us off? Is there anything that um, for patients that are losing sight, anything you'd recommend that we think about? Yeah, so I think one of the things that's difficult for people um, is the communication with friends and family about the problem. You know, most of us who have vision impairment or most people that have vision impairment, um, it's hard to tell, right? You can't look at somebody. I often joke with my patients and say, well, you know, you can wear an I'm visually impaired t-shirt or a button. But when you or in the grocery store and you're moving that cart through and you bump into somebody else, you don't look like you have a problem. Yeah. And so that can be incredibly frustrating to people because they often feel very isolated and alone because nobody understands or their spouse will say, well, look over there. And, you know, the patient will get very frustrated because they will think, well, why don't they remember that I can't say? And I think that's a wonderful thing and a horrible thing. It's a wonderful thing because we are not only about our vision, right? Yeah. We are a person. And so when your spouse tells you to look over there, that means they love you and who you are and not just about your eyes. But I think it's often incumbent upon us to remind these people that, yes, I would love to, but I can't. So it's also about forgiving others. So there's a lot of social adaptations that have to happen. And I think that's part of the process of sort of coming to terms with vision loss and um, being patient with others and being patient with ourselves. Wow. Dr. Beautifully said. Beautifully yeah. said. 
Beautifully, beautifully said. But thank you for being here today. Your work with low vision and low vision rehabilitation is so important for the visually impaired and so inspirational to us all. It's just really wonderful and wonderful to hear you speak of it. We learn so much and think about things differently. And thank you, thank you. And uh, I just wish you the best day, all good things. Thank you to you all. I really appreciate and really enjoyed talking with you today. Thank you, Dr. Goldstein. Thank you for listening to this episode of It Happened to Me. We encourage you to learn more at ithappentomepod.com. That's ithappentomepod.com. Please use the contact form on our website to submit your guest suggestions, comments, questions, ideas, and feedback for the show. You can also email us directly at ithappentomepod at gmail.com. Again, that's ithappentomepod at gmail.com. We would also really appreciate it if you can leave us a five-star rating and review on your podcast app, probably Apple or Spotify. This helps others in the rare disease and medical challenges community find us. It Happened to Me is created and hosted by Kathy Gillenhorn and Beth Glassman. Steve Polsenbach is our media engineer and co-producer. Myself, Kier Deneen from DNA Today, is our marketing lead and co-producer. Ashlyn Anokian is our graphic designer. And remember, it happened to me. I'm not alone and neither are you.